Welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast. If you like this podcast, help us by sharing the love. Leave a review of Art of the Cut on your favorite podcasting platform, or get involved in the conversation. Ask questions, leave comments. We read them all. Thanks. Art of the Cut is brought to you by Studio Network Solutions, helping video teams in over 70 countries transform the way they store, share, and organize content. Studio Network Solutions combines state-of-the-art shared storage hardware with intuitive media management software and powerful integrations for Adobe Premiere Pro, DaVinci Resolve, Avid, and Final Cut Pro 10. Visit studionetworksolutions.com and start creating amazing content faster. Hello, and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast. I'm Steve Hallfish. I'm a feature film editor and discuss the art and craft of film editing with my colleagues in film and TV. In this episode, I'm talking with Axel Geddes, ACE. Geddes started in live action editing and has been working at Pixar and Animation Post since his work as an additional assistant editor on Toy Story 2. He worked as a second assistant on Monsters, Inc. and WALL-E and a first assistant on Finding Nemo. He's edited several shorts and the feature Finding Dory as editor. Today we're discussing Toy Story 4, for which Geddes won the Ace Eddie for Best Edited Animated Feature Film and was nominated for the Annie Animation Awards. What do you think that your colleagues in the editing world saw in this movie that, that made them say, you need the Ace Eddie? And if you don't feel comfortable with that question, when you're watching somebody else's work, what makes you think that is a well-edited film or a well-edited animated film? Well, yeah, it's hard for me to talk about what they saw in uh, Toy Story 4 that made them think, like, oh, that's ace-worthy. I mean, I really, I honestly thought, like, uh, you know, I Lost My Body was going to be winning that night because it's such an original, beautiful, poetic film. But I was really proud and excited that Toy Story 4 did win the, the ace. It was such a... You know, it's like, oh, what a wonderful thing, right, to be recognized that way. I think maybe what they saw, I, hard for me to say, is we tried to be honorable to the Toy Story franchise, make it feel like a Toy Story film, while also making it not feel like a re repetition of previous films. It doesn't quite have the same kind of clip to it like other uh, Toy Story um, movies have had. You know, we have some moments of reflection and some kind of quieter beats and stuff in in the movie that are fewer and farther between in the Toy Story movies. When you're looking at other people's work, what attracts you to the editing or what makes you think this is a well-edited movie? What I'm often trying to do is trying to like be like a truth diviner, you know, try and like make sure that what I see on screen is like truth for the world that we're creating in the world that we're presenting. And so I try and look for that in other films. Watching Marriage Story this year, the performances were so true. They felt so honest and real. And I would say probably everybody was on at their best, right? And I felt like that was, you know, something the editor, when she was going through it, I think she must have had to go through all the different takes, as you do, right? And uh, just try and find what felt the most honest and true and like a real moment. You know, Laura Dern, I think, was so amazing in that film. Like, what she did uh, just felt like such a a real truthful and kind of not likable character, which is cool, you know? <laughs> right. I don't know. I think that's what I'm looking for, right, is truth, you know? A truth of emotion, truth within the storytelling, and believability. And that, you know, emotion over uh, over smoothness of the cut or any of that, or continuity or any of those other things. For those people that are not animation 
aficionados. They don't understand how the process goes. What are the broad strokes of the process? First, the script is delivered to, you know, the story artists. The story artists uh, come up with, uh, you know, they get handed one scene at a time or whatever, like each story artist, and then they interpret what they want to out of it, uh, try and figure out, interpret the pages visually, and they'll deliver, you know, 100 to 400 to 900 boards for a, a sequence. And then I have to then time out the boards with usually temp dialogue, scratch dialogue with our friends and neighbors around the studio, sound effects, temp sound effects, temp music uh, frequently, and then try and emulate what it would be like to watch the movie before we've actually made the movie. <laughs> We're making it with the story reels. And that's like kind of our job for the first like couple of years on the film. We'll usually have, over the course of a four and a half year project, it'll be about eight or ten screenings. And in between the screenings, you may have, it could be a whole page one rewrite, or it could be just some um, tweaking and uh, and turning of knobs and stuff. It could be that at the, after a screening, you go like, well, that didn't work, and throw it all up in the air and, and start over, and then we have to go back and, and kind of go through and and uh, do the whole thing all over again and go back to the, uh, go back to the drawing board. Editing an animated film is for a big chunk of it is like part be part of the writing process. You know, editing is always like the you know considered the final rewrite, right? But like because you can change so much in computer generated animation, you know, you can rewrite a bunch of it right at the last minute. Like on Toy Story Four, we rewrote the entire third act about six months before release. The same kind of events occurred, uh, Woody saying goodbye to Buzz and the other toys, but just the way that we did it and the the events that occurred to get him there, we completely changed, you know, and reordered and reconfigured in the last six months. So it's really kind of like being part of the writing and rewriting process. And some people have also compared it to like workshopping a play. You take it uh, out away from Broadway or whatever, and you go and uh, you play it for people and get a feeling for what it's like. And then you tweak it, rewrite it, tweak it, rewrite it, and then play it and then put it on again. And then until you get it to a place where you're like, oh, the, the ideas I'm trying to communicate with this film are actually getting across. It's interesting that three and a half years into the process, you're still rewriting stuff. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's something we've always done to greater and lesser degree. Some films, like Toy Story 3, I think was more like tweaking, you know, all along the way. The biggest changes we made were pretty early on in Act 1 because we're trying to convey the boredom of the toys without actually boring the audience, right? (laughs) Um, But in Toy Story 4, there was a lot more that was changing kind of all the time. And, uh, And we were just trying to... Because we really wanted to just narrow like what the story's about and who and what is Woody's arc and how is he getting to this because it's a big move that he makes at the end of the film. So we just need to make sure everything kind of lines up so that it feels truthful and right when when he makes that and that the audience is rooting for him, to, even if it's a little bittersweet. The audience is on his side and wants to see him make this choice. In the Pixar offices, is there like a go-to Tom Hanks? Is there a uh... (laughs) go-to? It changes over the years. Yeah, we do have our go-tos. I mean, for a long time, Andrew Stanton always did uh, a Woody. uh, But then at some point, like, you know, couldn't get him. And Pete Doctor used to be Buzz. And, uh, but he got too busy. So then you have to find other people. And uh, I think at a certain point, you know, Josh Cooley, the director of Toy Story 4, just became Woody. He, he sounds nothing like Tom <laughs> Hanks. But you're not really trying to emulate what Tom Hanks sounds like. Uh, you're really just trying to get the tone 
of what the beat is, you know, because we're never, ideally we don't animate any of that scratch. We, you know, sometimes you have to, but, um, but ideally we're just using it as a, uh, through the storyboarding process to test out whether, you know, the ideas are being communicated. But you also want, I would think, someone with enough performance skills that they're delivering in the pace of that person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely. We want to, ideally, you have somebody who's got the chops, you know, who maybe has, understands a little bit of acting. Um, if somebody freezes up in front of the microphone, uh, then they're probably not going to be selling the idea the way you want it to be sold, and it won't, you won't be able to test it out in front of the audience in a way. So do you and Josh walk through the offices, like, uh, you know, going off to lunch, and like, oh, that lunch lady, she's, a, a, you know, that, she's a, be the perfect... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and there are times when you when you cast you'll find somebody and you go, "Oh, that's that person could sound like this." Or we, or sometimes <laughs> they'll inspire you to actually put a character in the movie, you know, that you may not have actually thought about putting in. You know, that happens sometimes too. The prox- process at Pixar is the other interesting thing. I think a lot of people are interested in. And I have the creativity book, you know, there's a lot talked about. Yeah, yeah. The, the process at Pixar and how the story develops. You're in the mix of all these story artists that are trying to develop the story and the director, and what part are you playing in that? It depends upon where we're at in the process and how much I've got on my plate. After I joined Toy Story 4 in the fall of 2016 um, after it, uh, the director became Josh Cooley. We had a screening, almost immediately had a screening in um, January of 2017. And then I remember spending, I think, maybe all of February and, you know, maybe a chunk of March sitting in the story room with, like, me, the writer, uh, Josh, uh, the head of story. And then sometimes we'd bring in other story artists. What are we trying to do? And what's the message we're trying to send? And what order should we be telling that story in? And so I'd be pretty involved, you know, with cards and putting three-by-five cards on a big pin board. But I wasn't, like... They could go on without me if I was if I didn't show up, if I had something else I needed to take care of on the production, you know. And then once we actually get into pages being written and uh, things being handed off to the um, story artists, then I'll be brought in usually, I'll, usually if not, you know, the handoff to the story artist, then, you know, maybe the first pass or the second pass that they do so that I, I can see the pitch that they have. And then I can either, A, ask for maybe some alt shots or some alt poses um or i'll ask questions about you know like what what's the tone here what are we feeling like this what is this intent right there so that when it comes actually finally gets delivered down to my department then i can have a better guess at when we are first putting it together but yeah then we work really closely with the story department we work really closely with with josh we'll cut that whole thing together like i say with the dialogue the sound effects the music temp music and then i'll show it to josh after we've or the direct, director, whichever movie we're on, uh, and usually a story artist and and or the head of stories in my office when we do that, and then we'll usually have like a a little setup on the side where they can draw because um, we they do most of the drawings in Photoshop now, uh, and then they'll do the drawings and uh, they can ship them to me right there, and we can like iterate and rewrite and recraft a scene right in my office altogether. Got it. And some of the things that you might be asking for maybe like. Like you said, an alternate shot, like, oh, I think we need a close-up, we need a tight on his eyes or something like that. What are what are some of the things that you're requesting in those meetings? 
Sometimes it's like I I don't have the acting that I need, right? Like whether it's a thinking pose or a dialogue read sounds like one thing, but then the pose looks like something else, and so they don't feel like they match. Sometimes it's the coverage, like uh, I don't have the shot that is conveying the right emotion, or maybe I need a two shot, or maybe I need a shot of the a character who's listening to be able to get a feeling for how these lines are affecting him or her. Sometimes we'll get an idea for a gag and we'll throw it in there. You know, for instance, I remember there's one scene where Gabby is talking to Forky and trying to and reading her storybook to him. And she kind of tells her story and, and affects Forky emotionally. And I was like, I wasn't quite getting that. And so I asked the story artist Garrett. We were on a shot of of the storybook, and you can see her hands holding it. And I was like, what if Forky put his hand right on on her hand? Then you'd get the feeling like he's understood what she's saying, and then uh, and and he's kind of come around to it to it to what her point of view is. He's got showing some empathy, you know. And Garrett was like, oh yeah, yeah, I totally knew what it was. And I had it like a minute later. We looked at it, we showed it, we 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 worked on it together, and then we showed it to Josh, and he loved it, and you know. Yada yada yada, all that stuff. And yeah. that is in the film, if I remember. Correctly. And that's in the film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's very. There's cool. a lot of lot of stuff that we, uh, you know, will craft that way in storyboards, that we'll then try and emulate when we get into the next stage of production layout and and such. The process of going from storyboards to uh, what's called layout, and could you describe could you describe what layout is for people so that they understand kind of what that term is. Layout is uh, also known as camera and staging. So it's a department that is, uh, in, a, in a way, like our uh, directors, our directors of photography at Pixar are kind of uh, two different departments. You've got your lighting department and you have your camera and staging department, right? So layout is the camera and staging department, and they have to execute uh, camera moves, lens choice, and they also have to do all the blocking. We have usually... Uh, laid the groundwork in storyboards for what the blocking is. But through the layout process, you're going to discover a bunch of things when you actually get the characters into the actual space. Instead of it just being a 2D 2D drawing, you're going to discover all kinds of things that you're going to want to then explore. And so we'll um, lock a scene in storyboards and we'll be like, we love this scene. We're going to make this. This is the version of the movie we're going to make for this three minutes. We'll send it to layout. They will analyze what shots we're using and what we're trying to convey, and then do a location scout. And uh, then they'll invite me, they'll invite the uh, usually the production designer and the director, and kind of look around and get some notes from, from everybody of what they like, what they don't like. And then they'll go and they'll start building shots, right? And so that's blocking, that's um, trying to figure, you know, which lenses. Then they'll break, break the scene down in shots, and they'll send me all those shots. Uh, and then I'll just start cutting them like live action. And the beautiful thing about it is it's like live action, I can get coverage. Like in storyboards, I'm often getting a linear version of the, of the storytelling and not a lot of coverage unless I ask for it, right? Uh, with layout, depending upon the artist, uh, the layout artist, I can usually get coverage from, you know, different angles and different ways of looking at the scene. And I can cut it very in a very similar fashion to live action. And then I'll put together a cut and usually I'll then sit down with the director of photography and layout and I'll show them my cut. They'll ask me like, how come you didn't use this shot? And I'll say, well, it didn't work with this. And then they may go like, oh, what if I give you a different uh, shot before and a different shot after? Can we then use that shot? Because I think it conveys X meaning. And then I will try that. And sometimes we'll both like it. Sometimes one of us will like it. Sometimes 
uh, the other, you know, other one will, and then we'll, but we'll usually come to a compromise where we have something that we really like, and then usually we'll then show that to the director. Ideally, we've solved in our minds about like ninety percent of the problems before we show to the director, so the director can then answer some of the questions that we've uh, unveiled, and then usually, ideally, they get inspired, and they may even throw out the whole thing uh, when they when they really get inspired, uh, but. That might be because they're like, oh, now that I see it in 3D space and I see the characters moving around, now I see a new way that we can approach this whole scene. That can be really frustrating for some people, you know, because you've just spent like four weeks building out this uh, scene. But I always kind of get really excited when that happens because I feel like, oh, we've broken some new ground. This iteration has created something none of us would have seen on our own. And we've together we've created something that's greater than, uh, than we may have been able to do on our own. It's funny, like just to back up a little bit about what we, how we craft the storyboards. One of the very first scenes I cut here was in the first act of Wally, and I had one of my first reviews with Andrew Stanton, and um, we didn't have any dialogue in in that movie uh, for big chunks of it. I was like, maybe my first, maybe my second time cutting storyboards. I showed that scene to Andrew. I had like worked two weeks on it or something, and I put all these beeps and boops and, you know, sound effects and all this kind of stuff and, and that I'd kind of gotten out of the uh, archives or maybe I'd stolen from Gary Rydstrom, who luckily was three offices away from me at the time. And I was pretty proud of it. I was excited about it. And I showed it to Andrew. And then he took a deep breath. And he was like, here's the thing. When you're editing animation, the first thing you have to do is inhabit the character and craft the performance. You have to really be an actor first and then you can start editing the scene and start thinking about it and so it's like it's a two-stage process and when I thought about that and I looked at the scene in my mind like how it was it was like oh it's too fast I wasn't letting the character breathe I wasn't letting him think I wasn't let you know all these kinds of things so I was like ah crap you know and I kind of kicked him out of my office and I'm like all right all right I, now I understand what you're talking about I'm gonna come back in like you know a couple a of days <laughs> yeah <laughs> exactly uh, and I I totally rethought the way I cut the scene and uh, and then showed it to him and then he went ah great okay now we can start working right and it totally unlocked animation editing for me because all my experience prior to that even though I'd been working in the studio for like four or five years as, as an assistant all my experience cutting had been live action before that and so I needed that primer right on like what exactly this is so yeah when we're getting into storyboarding we're trying to put all that emotion and get all those feelings in there and trying to convey I don't think of it as storyboarding for camera I always think of it as emotional storyboarding, storyboarding for beats, for moments, for character arcs. And so, yeah, when you get into layout, you can lose some of that uh, emotional quality because you might be looking more at, like, how do these shots cut together? Where is their eye line? What is the uh, flow here? You know, are we still getting the story? One of the things we do is, and actually just to say, like some of our layout artists are former animators and their, their blocking is amazing. Like, <laughs> and everybody's blocking in the layout department is, like, is so much more advanced than it was when I first started here when it was like all T-poses uh, gliding through the scenes. But they're not supposed to be spending much time animating in there. So it will take a step backwards and we will oftentimes... Once we lock it for animation, we'll oftentimes have to tell them to go back and look at the storyboard version 
of the scene and say, this is what the intent was. And these are the feelings we had for this moment. Even if we're covering it in a completely different angle or a different, in their, you know, completely different camera move, we still have an emotional intent that, w- w- that we'd figured out over in the storyboarded version. It's on the director, it's on the animation supervisors, it's on the editor to keep track of those emotional beats to make sure that we're hitting all that stuff and we don't lose it. Because um, the animator gets it and they're, they're in a bubble, right? They might have three or four shots, but they're not looking at the whole. And so you have to just, when it comes back in, you try and see it early enough that you can adjust it and give them notes so that it actually stays on track and tells the same story we've been trying to tell. The people who are drawing the storyboards are very drawing expressive faces, and yeah, 100%. and the layout is like, uh, is not quite stick figures, but you know, it's yeah, the the, yeah. Exp- the expressions aren't changing at all, or are yeah. they changing some now in, in story? In we layout? have there's there. It depends. Depends on what the what the shot is about, and whether sometimes we will add because we're like, oh, right around this beat, we want this like little micro expression to happen or something. We might put ask the layout artist to at least give an indication of that timing. Sometimes we'll just say, go back to this, you know, tell the animators, go back to storyboards and look at that. And then also when the director hands that scene off to animation, they'll go through each shot and say like, this is what's happening here. This is what our intent is here. This is what we were, this is why this shot is in the movie and what what we're trying to convey to the audience um, for these, you know, for this moment. And this is how we want, this is how the character is feeling and this is what they're trying to do. You know, just like an act, just, just the way a director has to communicate with an actor in live action. They've got to keep all, all of that in their head and then um, communicate that. We try not to have like audience previews with layout in them because there's uh, a lot less emotion in them, but we still, sometimes you just run out of time and you need to do it. <laughs> and you just hope it hope it works, you know. So you warn the audience a little bit and move on. Yeah, we always have to train the audience for audience previews with like a little progression reel of, you're gonna see some things that look like this. You're gonna see some things that look like this. There's a great editing moment when uh, a baby carriage flips over and a woman looks inside and there's a jump scare. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. How, how much did you have to tweak that? How is that so effective? Talk to me a little bit about that scene. That was one we tweaked a bunch, right? And like trying to get the uh, music, you know, we had temp music that that like hit that beat and then working with Joey Rand, the music editor, and working with uh, Randy Newman to make sure that that stayed like that that worked just as well as it did in the storyboards because that's one of the things you have to track is like we made this work in the storyboards let's make sure we don't lose that as we get it down down through production you know but I remember looking at that and it might have been one of the last things that we locked timing for because I think as it was being finished I shipped it long those shots so that I could have the ability to be able to tweak it and shore it up because I wanted the flexibility to be able to find that timing. Real six, which was the uh, act three, that was the last thing we locked anyway, because uh, it was the last thing we finished. But I do feel like that was one of the things that where we were like tweaking back and forth, back and forth. That and the moment when Duke Kaboom, he's trying to, he's jumping over the carnival and he's trying to get over to the thing. We have that like big drawn out kind of ridiculous moment with him uh, having his glory, and then hitting the light at the end, and 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 like uh, and smashing and crashing. Everything was working, but we as an audience were not tracking uh, Duke hitting the light. And the light was actually something the animator brought to the table. It was something that they were they thought would be funny. It was like Duke like messing it up and hitting hitting that light. 
And we were like, well, that's, I think it is funny, but it's not working because we're not seeing it because it was just too fast. I was like, I kept on going back and forth with the uh, fix anima- uh, animation lead, Nate. And I was like, how do we work this? How do we make, how do you read this? And then at one point I was like, well, maybe we could just do this. And I pressed, you know, play and pause, you know, just does the <laughs> slow-mo. And I was like, we could just do it like this, kind of joking. And then I was like, oh, no, that's it. That's exactly what we do. That's actually really funny. So then I just timed it out and edit and then shipped it back to Anim. And then animation emulated that timing. But it was pretty late. I think we might have already uh, lit it, you know, by then. So we had to kind of retroactively um, reanimate and fix it. Um, just because it just was not tracking, and then after that, it was funny. So go figure. <laughs> that is a big. That was the other big. Another big editing scene for me was that jump because you're trying to draw out the emotion and the fun and the and it's yep. visually gorgeous because he's jumping over the lights and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. But it can't go on forever. No, no. I mean, <laughs> yeah, you can't go on forever. But you want to you want to milk it for all the gags and all that fun because you also know you've got like this. You've got this kind of melancholy ending, you know, a bittersweet ending. So you want to be able to have, like, kind of pepper these jokes and gags and entertainment uh, leading up to that so that the audience will feel like they're ready for those moments that we know, that we as the filmmakers know are coming. And so, uh, you know, you play around with all that stuff and sometimes you cut it back too far and then you watch it. I always try and get a big head start of like five or ten minutes before I just, instead of just looking at it like this, you know, I want to look at it like, let me look at it holistically, get a real nice run up to it, and then get the feeling for it. And then uh, and then you might shore it back too much and then put it back, you know. That's just part of the process, though. That's a great tip, though, to not just roll back five seconds. Oh, yeah. Context is, is, the, is the thing, right? Like, I try and show as much of the movie as I possibly can in my office whenever I can because we're not making a sequence, you know, we're making a feature film. If you do spend too much time just looking at like three minutes of the film, then each film, each sequence can feel disconnected from the next and from the previous. So that's one of the things that's great about having our process of having the the screenings because you're looking at the film holistically. You know, you know that there's a problem in some scene or you might think the scene works great you know, at the end of Act 2, but then you look at it with the whole movie and you go like, why doesn't that scene land? And that may be because you haven't, you know, laid the tracks yet to get there, or maybe there's a problem with that scene. Maybe it's too much talking, maybe it's not enough for the right talking, maybe it's, you know, maybe it's the music, maybe it's the tone, maybe it's the pacing, you know, and you just have to try to analyze all that stuff. But if you do it in a vacuum and it's just one scene, you might be making choices that are not actually helping you. Somebody said something about a movie recently that I thought was really funny, which was they said the movie was cut so fast that it felt long. And I was like, it's funny because you'd think if the movie's cut like really fast, you're like, you're keeping the audience's attention. But actually the opposite is happening. They're, you're losing their attention because uh, because they don't they can't get a grasp on the beats, you know? They're like, they always feel a little bit behind. And at a certain point, they're like, the filmmakers don't care. Why should I care? I have to clarify a technical issue that you mentioned um, that yeah. s- s- everybody should understand if they're an editor, but maybe they don't. You said you, you use play and pause. You weren't stopping. You were slow-moing, right? I was slow-moing, yeah. And it's just, you know, I do that frequently to kind of get an, especially in animation when you're, when you're trying to figure out why something, you know, that you can tweak, right? You can tweak a performance. I will frequently use that if I can't figure out why something isn't reading, 
I'll slow things down just in playback because it's not the same when you just step through it frame by frame. It doesn't feel, you know, you need to have some sort of emulation of motion in order to read why things are or are not reading. I'll be back in a moment with more of my discussion with Axel Geddes, ACE. Let's face it, we always need more storage for our media and projects, but sometimes having storage isn't enough because the more you have, the harder it is to find your files. Studio Network Solutions understands that. That's why their EVO shared storage servers provide industry-leading performance for real-time 4K and even 8K editing and also include an entire suite of features designed to help you organize and manage your media. Every system comes with built-in software so you can search, tag, and preview all your storage, backup tools so you always know your media and projects are protected, and integrations for Premiere Pro, DaVinci Resolve, Avid, Final Cut Pro 10 all included for free with your EVO shared storage server. As a special offer for my listeners, you can get 10% off of a new EVO system by going to studionetworksolutions.com slash AOTC and signing up for an online demo. If you're tired of rummaging through a mountain of drives to find your files, it's time to give your storage an upgrade. So before you add another drive to the pile, visit studionetworksolutions.com slash AOTC and discover a better way to store, share, and organize your media. And now back to my discussion with Axel Geddes, ACE. One of the other places that I, I really liked emotionally, and I felt like it was timing and it was pace and a lot of things, is there's a big scene, um, and again, not to give too much away, but it involves Bo and Woody and Gabby in a, bo- right. in a box. Can oh, yeah. Uh-huh. You, can you talk to me about the the conversations that went on around that or what you guys felt like you, you got it just right? Because I feel like you really got that scene just right. As so many. Well, that's scenes, lovely to hear. But, but um, that one was like I that made me cry. That scene made me cry. Oh, that's awesome. I love that. I know for me, uh, one of the things I really wanted to do is see if we could redeem our villain in the movie and to really have empathy for her. Right, and that's part of what that scene earlier we were talking about with uh, Forky putting his hand on, on on uh, Gabby's, uh, and being so like that scene was really kind of like uh, about you know Woody's made a choice that he needs to um, needs to come back and help Gabby, right? It's and it's a it's more important. He's had this whole life, right, where he's been loved not by one but by two kids, and that's that's a, like a place of privilege that you know, most toys don't get. So he's had like a lifetime and a half. And so getting into that scene, it's really about him trying to convince her that it's worth worth um, shooting for and worth trying for. And we had that beat of them listening to the carnival, hearing the kids outside. And we tried that in a number of different screenings in different areas of the film with trying to convey that idea to different characters. And then finally, we found this moment where we could use that as a way to convince Gabby, like emotionally, there's love out there for her and she's worthy of it. And that we need to, uh, and this is like a way to emotionally feel it as opposed to just say it. And we tweaked that speech uh, with Woody a lot. Like, a, uh, a lot, a lot. <laughs> <laughs> we tried it a bunch of different times. And I remember, this. I think it's that speech Maybe it's the well. We were recording with Tom Hanks, like in December of eighteen. Uh, we were re-recording that speech, and then a speech towards the end after they see Gabby um, with the little girl at the carnival. 
I remember we were going back and forth and rewriting and retrying and tweaking all the lines. And he looked up at us and said, guys, just I don't think we're there yet. Why don't we book? Because it was supposed to be our last session with him. He said, why don't you book another hour with me in the new year after you've like figured out exactly what you need here? Uh, and so, uh, which was great for him to give us his time because uh, it's precious and uh, and also to give us the understanding that he he knew we would figure it out if we got there, if we spent a little more time on it. It gave us the tether, you know, that we needed in order to be able to to explore a little bit. We reworked that that scene and worked it with uh, the writer and, and stuff, and then we um, recorded them again in, like, January, February. But the combination of all those pieces were all things that we had been playing around with. When does Bo come back? Woody was kind of a jerk to Bo in the alley, and like, why does she come back? You know, and so we had to rework that scene before when they're about to go under the, when they go under the carousel. And then, you know, all of those were really very tenuous pieces that we needed to make sure held up uh, well. So we kept on rewriting, 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 right up to the last second. The audience has to know that Gabby getting the sound box is not going to solve her problems. Right. That's a difficult balance. I think the audience may know that it's not going to solve her problems emotionally, but I don't know if they know it intellectually because what they're really worrying about, I think, is what does that do to Woody? Their emotional center is with Woody. So they're more worried. Like, what is she going to do to Woody and how is she and, like, what's the threat to him because he's our main character? And so when he gives it up... That story she tells him has to be—we also rewrote and reworked that story she tells him in the, in the back of the antique store. Because not only does, the, does Woody need to, be, need to be convinced to give that up, but we as an audience need to be convinced that when he gives it up that we're, that we're okay with that. In any film, in any storytelling, you want to—the audience needs to know just enough in this scene that you're watching right now to want to watch the next scene— and so if you give them too much information, you know, then they resent you. It just you go like, oh, exposition. I don't I don't why do you, why are you telling me this? I, I'm not going to retain any of that information. Why why do you keep saying it? And so I think you're always trying to balance that. Did you guys ever have some kind of resolution to lose to him losing the voice box? Cuz there's no in the story, there's no consequence to him losing the voice box. We tried a bunch of different stuff. You know, a long time ago we had a version where Woody went back with Bonnie and she accepted him anyway without his voice box. In fact, it was actually pretty touching. She picked him up and we were, and she turned him over and she saw that he didn't have his pull string anymore. And then she like turned him around and went, you're my favorite deputy, like started doing his voice. Um, and it was like pretty sweet, but it just wasn't the right choice for the movie we were making. And there were versions when he was rejected for having having the uh, no voice box. But ultimately, what the movie told us it wanted was that he gives up his voice box willingly, regardless of what it means. And he's going to take his chances, whether Bonnie loves him or not, without it. But then he's going to make a choice to choose to go with Bo and try and do something more with his life because he's already had, I think, just seeing what he could do to try and, you know, matchmake with the little girl at the carnival and Gabby, I think he's like, wow, there's a whole other world out there. Maybe I can do something completely different with my life. And he has, like, a little more agency than a, a normal toy does. And I think Bo shows him that over the course of the film. And that became, like, our second act really was about us trying to set it up so that Bo shows him that there's a whole other option for a life out there. I'm struck by our conversation, two dudes 
talking so much about emotion. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think it is about, uh, from an emotional point, that makes a good editor? Like we can talk about, oh, pacing and timing and all this stuff, but so many of my conversations center around emotion and empathy. Without empathy for the characters and without emotionally connecting, audiences don't care about the movie. We're asking audiences to kind of step into somebody else's point of view when you're watching a movie and to kind of get a new perspective on the world. You know, that's one of the things I love about movies over like any other of the film art forms, you know, is that in a perfect world, you can walk into the theater with one kind of thoughts about the world, you know, and then you can walk out two hours later with maybe a slightly different perspective on things. And I think uh, you don't get that if you don't have an emotional connection to the character or the characters that are within the film. And you don't get that if you don't get to see through their eyes for just a moment. And I think that's what continues to make cinema magical. I think it's true in a, you know, in a live action film, you know, like a Parasite or Marriage Story or, or uh, you know, Ford versus Ferrari or something like that. And it's true in a animated feature, like you know, at, at their best, like a, I Lost My Body or Toy Story 4. You know, it's like you're getting to see somebody else's perspective and you're inhabiting their point of view and you're getting to get a new take on the, the world that we live in. Was that kind of what the director was trying to get at when you were cutting that Wally scene or was it more performance? Was it the emotion that you weren't getting? I think it was the emotion. I think that comes through uh, empathy for the character and understanding what they what they're feeling, what's their thought process. And I think, and it was particularly tricky in Wally because you don't um, so little dialogue. There's, yeah, there's no dialogue. You can't rely upon exposition in the same way that you can in other films. You have to convey it with visual storytelling. One of the things we experimented in the first like year before we had Steve Schaefer, who was the lead editor on it, was still busy finishing Incredibles, and I think he helped out in Cars for a little bit, and Ben Burt wasn't on the film yet. Uh, so we were just trying to figure out how do you communicate these things, you know, with just beeps and loops and stuff like that and you're and one of the things i think we realized pretty quickly is like if you want the audience to know what the character is saying you're not going to convey any real information with those beeps and boops but you can convey emotion so you have to be really clever about your camera placement and your camera <laughs> staging and your and what and what your characters are doing and and even just like you know Wally with like making the uh, his eyes move or up or you know any of that kind of stuff. All that stuff is conveying more emotion than anything else. And I think the only way to do it is to inhabit it as the editor, as the story artist, and then as the anime as the camera department as the animators later on. When you're switching from something like a cut with a uh uh, layout to a final lit scene. I think of yeah. something like that big wide shot of the inside of the antique shop that was just gorgeous, the reflections and all that stuff. And and you're looking at probably something much more wooden before that yeah. stage. And you yeah. go, oh, yeah, I'm, I, that scene deserves two seconds. And then you later on, you're like, I need 10 seconds of that. <laughs> That's gorgeous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did that are happen? Are you talking about the scene when Woody and Bo are looking up and they look up and they see all the lights above yes. them? Yes, yep. Yeah. That, that is one of the scenes, uh, that is one of the shots that I had to extend uh, later on, much to the chagrin of uh, Bill Reeves, <laughs> who uh, continually said he didn't want any chandeliers in the movie because they're very, very hard to execute. And that is the most expensive shot in the movie, frame to frame. We wanted more of that shot. We needed more of it because you're really trying to 
I remember it's Carrie Hobson, who uh, one of the story artists, she was like adamant that we needed that scene in the movie. She really fought for it, and she was 100% right. Like, we needed that scene in the movie in order to convey this connection between Woody and Bo, for Bo to really pitch her idea of what the world is and what life could be for a toy, and for them to have the, to share a moment of beauty. And so, like, you have the music, you have the speech, you have them kind of like looking at each other's eyes and all that kind of stuff. But it's really looking up at that beautiful scene of the lights and the sun coming through it and the sun setting. You know, it's a typical romantic kind of uh, shot. And uh, yeah, we you're right. We we had to extend it. I think I extended it by another two seconds, I think. Yeah. And cost, <laughs> cost Pixar another $100,000. Yeah, I don't know how much it costs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's the reverse of the old uh, story that I hear from so many editors that they don't go on the set because they don't want to know, oh, this shot took you know eight hours to yeah. set up this dolly shot yeah, that yeah. I'm then not going to use. You're doing the just reverse. Not use it. Yeah, You're like, yeah. ah, I don't care how much it costs to light that scene. I'm just going to extend it by I three need seconds. more of it. I need more. Yeah. I mean, we had to cut out a whole scene out of Dory that was complete. It was finished and final. Like it was the first scene when we put in the layout and the first scene we uh, finished. And then we realized it was in the first act and we realized, oh, this, this, it's taking forever for act one to go and it's taking forever for Dory to get on her journey. And watching her, it was a scene called sleep swimming and it was watching her sleeping was not helping our pacing issues. <laughs> so <laughs> if I knew how much that scene cost, maybe I would have felt uh, reticent, but I, it's not, that's not my problem. My my problem. <laughs> so for those Pixar fans, uh, tell me a little bit about the sleeping scene that got cut out. What what was in it that was great that they wanted? You know that somebody obviously decided it was a great scene. I think it just we wanted to feel in that scene. We wanted to feel like Dory being pulled, like she had had this moment where she had had like a, a she suddenly had recovered a memory, you know, after being pulled into the manta rays or whatever. And she got knocked unconscious, and she had this like memory there, like of her parents. And then like we wanted to feel that pull, but it was too much of a slow. We had to lose it, but that scene was like trying to show her like it's bothering her so much she can't even sleep. She's being pulled away from her for a current home with Marlon and Nemo and pulled out into the open ocean. And and they're frustrated, almost like parents are with a toddler, right, who, like, gets up, doesn't realize, doesn't care about bedtime or any of those things and keeps wandering away. And so we finally just, like, we got a note, like, it's just we need to shorten Act 1 and we need to kind of get their journey going sooner. And so it was like... I pulled that scene. I got. I think it was Angus, who's the co-director, was like, "Ah, we don't need sleep swimming." And I think he was joking, but maybe he wasn't. I don't know. <laughs> it may have just been a provocative a statement. And I was like, uh, "Wait, hold on a second. I think you might be right." Everybody out. <laughs> and I, I spent the rest of. The, I spent like two days trying to cruft it all together so that it could just. And it was like a crappy version of it, but just to get to sell the idea that we could like go straight, basically, kind of straight from her having the memory to her being like saying to Marlon and Nemo, help me find my parents. Cause that's really what it is. And we had a lot of problems in that movie with telling the story because it's a movie about a character with short term memory loss. And so it's how do you keep that character engaged, you know? And so we had to, we tried a bunch of different things and that was one of the many things we tried to try and sell this idea for having a memory recovery and then, and then that launching her on her journey. And I'm sure that when you cut that out, that would be another con- contextual thing where you can't just cut it out and watch 30 seconds after the cut. You've got to watch to see how it affects the whole movie. Yeah, that one, I remember we watched the whole first act 
into the first scene in the second act. And that was like just to get a feeling for whether, like, did we feel like it was going. And then the next big one we did on that was about nine months from release. We recut the entirety of the movie because we took the prologue that had been like the entire story of Dory and her parents. It was like a five-minute scene, and we just shipped it to animation. But it told the whole story of her being with her parents, her parents trying to uh, teach her about shells and teach her about like staying away from the the jet stream or whatever, and you know all these kinds of things. But we as an audience weren't able to retain all that information, and it was frustrating for us as an audience because we're like, when is she going to remember all this stuff? So what we we did an experiment in editorial, which was we took that prologue and we broke it up throughout the movie and treated them, treated the moments and the beats like memories. And then when she got to a new location, she would have one of those memories. So each one of those beats, when she got to a new location after she'd remembered her parents uh, after the raise, she would get those beats. And then we then we screened the movie. That time we screened the whole movie because we knew when she got to the part where she found her parents again by the cut following the seashell path, we knew that had to be super emotional, and it hadn't been. We weren't feeling the emotional heft of that scene that we knew it had to have. But by spreading this prologue throughout the movie as memories, we suddenly had that, right? We suddenly could track her story, be with her on her journey, and be able to have an emotional involvement in the in, in her story. Uh, but we did that all in editorial and just like, and then watched the whole movie, and we're like, yep, that works. And then we had to retrofit the rest of the movie to fit around those uh, memories. Jeremy Lasky was the head of camera and staging, figured out this whole way of whipping the camera around backwards and forwards to try and get us in and out of the memories. And then we rewrote each of those memories so that they worked in the particular moment that we ended up putting them in. And that was like super gratifying as an editor to go like, hey, I can solve a problem, you know? <laughs> That's awesome. And I can't believe that those, that uh, it got that far into the process. Like, I mean, you guys are... One, great storytellers to start with. Everybody on the team is a great storyteller. And you've got this thing that lived for a long time like it lived before yeah. the, the final solution was found. I think for a long time we saw Dory's memory loss as a liability to our storytelling as opposed to an asset and what all the storytelling needed to hinge upon. So once we embraced it as an asset and like and really what the movie needed to be dealing with, then we were able to really tell her story and really be there with her as the main character, you know? And uh, and it was a struggle, I think, for all of us, you know, as we were going through it. But once we once we got that, that became the movie that, you know, that we were making. But I think it wasn't, it wasn't obvious. I mean, you know, like you were saying earlier, it's like you want these things to feel inevitable and obvious, like that's the way it had to be for the audience. But getting there involves a lot of wrong turns uh, as far as writing, editing, you know, all these kinds of things in order to like, in order to figure out what should feel inevitable. I want to ask you one final question. I've kept you for one an hour. One. I really okay. appreciate the, the time. There's a timing, the music, the pacing of the big goodbye scene at the end. Oh, yeah. um, there's a great dynamic, like the building and the dynamics and the happy and the sad. You talked about how important it was that you've got this kind of bittersweet ending. How yeah. do you prep the audience to accept this bittersweet ending. Talk to me a little bit about that whole thing. What's funny, like we, like I said, we tried a bunch of different things for that, um, for the ending of the movie. 
And going into the preview, we had audience preview, which is November of 18. We had one version of the ending. And at the same time, we were prepping a B version of the ending. Like the story team was was like going, maybe we should do this, you know? And then when we came out of the audience preview, we realized the version we had in there wasn't quite working. But then we looked at the B version that the story team was coming up with, and people were feeling like that didn't quite work either. So what we ended up doing was kind of a hybrid of both. I remember the story team, Val, who was the head of story, she suggested this idea that like after that moment in the alley, Bo's like, I'm just taking off. And then having this like moment where she goes like, oh, I've got to, I got to go back after Giggle tells, tells Bo about all the things, you know. Uh, about all the, you know, like, kind of makes all these suggestions. And then, uh, and uh, and Bo's like, no, you're, everything you're saying, I know you're trying to convince me to forget about that guy, but all, honestly, all those things are the reason why I, he, he should be part of our life, right? And so, like, that was all stuff that was in the B story. And then there were some other things that were part of the, the A version of it. So we kind of crafted those all together, and we lost our story department by then. Like, we only had a couple people, so we used kind of whatever story storyboards we had from previous versions. And then sometimes we just did radio plays. You know, we cut it together as a radio play with descriptions on the scene of like, this happens, this happens, this happens, this happens, and then ship that to layout, which is not our normal way of doing things. We did a lot of that. Then they laid it all out. And then we cut it all more like a live action movie in, in some some ways, you know. I mean, some of the beats we'd already we already had from other versions. So it was like this weird hybrid of all those. We were using a lot of temp music from Toy Story films, you know, because, you know, Randy, we'd already recorded a bunch of stuff with Randy, but we hadn't recorded that scene yet. Um, but we used some some music from some of the Toy Story films there and then some other stuff from some other Randy scores. And then we just kept on trying to, like, hone it and just make sure that we were really on target with what we were trying to say and what we were trying to trying to do. Because it was, like, just be as specific as possible but not giving too much information. Because I think there was a whole thing where Bo gave a speech when they were watching uh, Gabby with the girl at the carnival and then Woody was giving a speech and it was like this whole thing and it just felt like too much. It felt like we were telling the audience instead of showing. So we just pulled all that stuff out. And we also had a big speech at the uh, at the end with with Woody, with Buzz and Bo and there was like too much talking and I remember I, I remember pulling out all the words and just using the kind of like the words that Tom Hanks had said in between the lines to try and just convey meaning, right? So it would be like because we wanted, it felt more emotional that he couldn't really talk. He didn't want to say goodbye to Bo. He didn't want to say goodbye to Buzz. He didn't want, you know, all these kind of, he's torn between these two, is like kind of love and duty, right? And I think ultimately what tipped him over towards, lo- you know, love for, you know, is the fact that he's actually doing love and duty, but it's duty of a new variety, right? It's like, I can go out there and try and help make a difference in the world. I think my answer is pretty convoluted for your question, <laughs> but um, uh, but ultimately, I think it was just it was really we actually did it pretty fast, um, and we had to watch the whole movie again, right, incomplete to make sure that that whole that whole ending landed emotionally the way the way it did. I felt like it was a pretty great moment of pride for me when we showed it to Randy, and he said, "The temp's pretty good here." 
I was like, that's like high praise. High praise, yeah, Mr. I Newman. Bet. I bet. <laughs> and composers have just got to hate temp, but at least his, his own temp, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that was probably part of his joke. He's one of the funniest people. The, um, uh, but I think one of the things we had going for us was ending on, as when you get to the end of end of the movie, really effectively, and you, you, Woody and Bo have said goodbye to the, our gang, and Bonnie and her family have driven off in the RV. And then we cut back and we we see them, uh, Woody and uh, Bo, on top of the carousel, and they have their kind of playful moment. And we tilt up and reveal the moon and all that stuff. We have this big cue, kind of like a big kind of classic movie cue, right? Like that kind of says like this, this is right. You know, and it's a big, bold move, and it feels like emotional and has this big emotional heft to it, you know. But we also hedged our bets by having that like uh, epilogue at the end for, with a bunch of goofy, fun gags, you know. So, you know, <laughs> there you go. Yeah, you don't want to walk out of the theater uh, after Axel Getty's name uh, rolls, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, you want to feel you want to you want to feel pretty good and have some good good giggles after that. Um, thank you so much for a wonderful conversation. I love talking about story and emotion and all that stuff with you. Uh, uh, super great conversation. Thank you for your time. Uh, my my pleasure, Steve. Really nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. Thanks for listening to the Art of the Cut podcast. Also, check out ProVideoCoalition.com for more than 200 interviews with the world's top editors. Or read the book, Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors for a topic-driven, curated experience. Thanks again to my guest, Axel Geddes, ACE. I'm Steve Hallfish. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at at Steve Hallfish. Also, subscribe to this podcast. Be sure to check out the previous episodes and make sure to tell a filmmaking or film-loving friend. If you like this podcast, help us by sharing the love. Leave a review of Art of the Cut on your favorite podcasting platform or get involved in a conversation. Ask questions, leave comments, we read them all. Thanks. Thanks.